All right, take your Bibles and make your way to Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 29, and if you've got your outline there, you're going to notice that we're going to try to make it through verse 39, 21 to 39, and I know that's uh, lightning fast for some of you. I know that that's not a crawl. We actually might be walking through the text today. And hopefully you won't lose your place or your mind as we try to do that. I shared in our D group this morning, it's been kind of a rough week. We got some hard news uh, that some dear friends of my wife and mine that we went to Bible college with and have served the Lord faithfully, have 10 children, adopted three other children from the foster system. Um, he, our friend Brian, who's the husband, been diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer, very advanced this week, he's a young guy, he's our age. And, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. And that's a hard thing, right? And it's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle because of what we know. It's, it's a, it, it, our theology, what we believe, know, commit ourselves to as truth about God can sometimes be problematic. Can it? Because what's the problem here? Oh, there's a number of problems. I can think of a lot of other people that should have this disease, and none of them are him. Right? Come with, right? Right? That's a problem. Right? Here's another problem. God can say the word, and what? He's healed. Right? He can do it. But that might not be God's will, and that's the problem. Right? So it exposes issues, if you will, in our understanding of both God and his word. And today I want to, uh, I, I want to be as, as careful with the text as I can because I, want, I don't ever want to lose <laughs> Mark's fast run through the start of Jesus' ministry here. I want you to always feel the sense of that quickness immediately following Christ, right? So I've just entitled this section, Kingdom Authority on Display. How many of you are glad that God has authority and he granted it through Jesus Christ? And how cool would it have been to see this, to have been sitting in that synagogue on that Saturday and watch what we're about to, about to see? That was a long day for Jesus. We're going to get into all of that in a minute. But let me, let's just bring it right down and look at chapter 1 and verse 21 to 22. Um, and let me, let me just read that. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there's that word again. Anybody seen that word so far? And immediately on the Sabbath, so we know it's what day? It's Saturday. Saturday. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. If you have your own Bible, underline that word authority. And not as one of the scribes. So in your outline this morning, here's your first fill-in, is that Jesus here has a comprehensive authority in teaching. He here is speaking for God. He's speaking for God. God. Now, I, I do feel the need 
I think a histor historical timelines are so important to understand what's going on. Remember, Mark is fast, and he's skipping a bunch of things. He is just giving a highlight. So it looks like he calls Peter, John, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and like literally they, they walk a few miles to Capernaum, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. And that's not how it happened. Um, and we know that from the other gospels, specifically from... Um, Luke and Matthew. So what do we miss? What do we miss? Well, here's the chronology of the events of a day in the life of Jesus based on a synoptic gospels. And this will give us what we miss. I think they'll come up on the screen a few at a time. Number one, in between the calling of these four and uh, what we're going to read as, he, as, as they walk into the, the, the synagogue at Capernaum, First thing he does is he heals a leper. We find that only in Matthew 8, 1 through 4. Then he heals a centurion's son in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And then he's preaching the word with authority in a synagogue, not, not this synagogue, in, in another one. In, or actually, it is this synagogue here in Mark 1. And then Luke 4, but it's not in Matthew. Then after that, we have the casting out of the unclean spirit and then the spread of the news about Jesus. And then after this, we're going to see all this today. He enters Peter's home, heals the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, and then seven, um, he heals a bunch of people and casts out demons that evening. So what I want you to see is he's already healed a leper and he's healed the centurion's son. And we can make a safe assumption that Peter and Andrew, James and John were with him. We're part of this. So some days have elapsed. Possibly even weeks. By the time they travel to Capernaum um, and walk into the synagogue that morning. Now Capernaum is an interesting place. Um, it literally means, it's two words, um, that means Nahum's village, Capernaum. Um, it's the city of, of Nahum. Um, and what's interesting about that, Nahum's one of the few uh, Old Testament prophets. They, they, they call him the prophet of consolation or comfort because he comforts Israel concerning the Assyrians. All of Nahum's three chapters are all about what's going to happen to Assyria who had, who had violently violated God's people. It was God's righteous retribution against the very wicked people. And so Nahum was considered the prophet of consolation. So Capernaum had a nickname of the city of comfort or the city of consolation. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus made that place his home city, his hometown, his base of operation for the rest of his ministry. Capernaum the city of comfort, the city of consolation, because Christ had come to console a lost and a dying world with the good news about who he was. Um, also, interesting thing about this is um, Capernaum was the, at the end of a, a tax toll road. So no matter, the interesting thing is there's only one way in and one way out of Capernaum, and that's why it was convenient so it was the end of a toll road for the Romans, and so there would be a, a toll house and a Roman 
uh, comportment of guards there. There would be a Roman presence in that small city of 1,500 people. And the reason that's going to be important is because in, in just a little bit we're going to see it. He's going to actually call this guy named Levi. We know him better as who? Matthew, who was a taxi. He's the guy that sat in a toll booth, and nobody liked him, right? He's going to call Matthew to come, just like he does Peter and Andrew and James and John, and it makes sense what we know historically about Capernaum. So Jesus was a preacher for over a year when he began to teach in the synagogue at Capernaum. And his reputation had preceded him somewhat. So they knew, um, they knew somewhat who he was. The Bible says there in verse 21, as he went into Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. Now that's interesting. That would be, in, in their day, their custom was, you would, there was only one temple, but, the, but every city that had at least 10 Jewish men, 13 years and older, had a synagogue, kind of like a satellite campus, if you will, of the area, of the temple. And so they would go and worship the Lord on the Sabbath together. And this was kind of very different than, than our worship today. But uh, they would come in, and there would be on the side of the sanctuary of the, of the open room, um, they called it the ark. It was really a, a big box. And in this box held the copies of the scrolls of the Old Testament, if you can imagine that. <coughs> and then... Um, the, the, whoever was the leader of the synagogue there was one man in charge um, we would call that guy today the pastor but it was, it, was, it was different than a pastor but he was the chief leader of the synagogue um, any qualified man could read the scripture and even make a comment on it at the invitation of the head of the synagogue so apparently whoever was the the, the the head of that synagogue in Capernaum had heard something about this prophet Jesus and invited him to read the scripture and make a comment. And Jesus took him up on that. And so here he is in Capernaum. He reads the scripture. We are not told, we are not told what text he read from. We are not told what his sermon involved. We can make some guesses. It's probably very close to the sermon that he preached already in Mark chapter 1, which is the kingdom of God is here. Repent, believe the gospel, and follow me, right? It's probably something along those lines from the Old Testament. We don't know what it is, and I think the reason we don't know is it's not, that's not Mark's point. Mark's fast. He wants to get to a, to a point here. Here's his point is in verse 22, um, where he says, And they were astonished at his teaching, because he taught them, one, having authority, and not as the scribes. Now, the scribes were the guys that, that were the legal um, minds when it came to the Old Testament scriptures. So this synagogue, if you will, served, had four functions during the week. First and foremost, it was a meeting place for worship. Secondly, it was a school. Uh, school was held there. Rabbinic school was held there. Uh, children were taught there. Um, older disciples were taught there under the law. Thirdly, it was a civic court. Court was held there. Um, law, sessions of law were held there according to the Mosaic law, and the scribes would oversee all of that. And then fourth, it was a place for the, um, 
uh, Sanhedrin to meet and decide on larger cases. So there were four reasons for it. And they were used to hearing men come and read the scriptures. They're scribes, they're experts in the law. And they, they would commonly quote other famous rabbis um, and whatnot. Here's what Rabbi Gamaliel says about this text and what have you. But they were amazed that Jesus handled it differently. And I want you to think about it for a minute. John says, in the beginning was the word, right? We know that to be the logos of God, literally Christ, God written into human history. Imagine this for a moment. I bet it was different. This was the word teaching the word. This was Jesus teaching about what he had inspired and wrote. And instead of quoting the famous rabbis, Jesus taught it from a, the perspective, don't miss this, of the author. The perspective of the author. You imagine, I bet that sermon was different. It was so different that it, it amazed them. And that word amaze in the Greek um, literally means um, uh, to, it, it, to strike a blow. It, it means to, to, to be hit so hard, the, the picture is to be knocked out of yourself. Our modern vernacular say they were blown away by the way he handled the scriptures. They said, we never heard anybody teach like this before. Charles Spurgeon said this, he, uh, he did not do as the scribes did, who made a great parade of learning by quoting this rabbi or the other. But Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he spoke as one who felt that he had authority to speak in his own name and in the name of God his Father. This method of teaching quite astonished the Jews. I wish that those who now hear the gospel might be astonished at it and be astonished into the belief of it by the power which comes home to their consciences and heart. I think, I think Matthew's point, the reason he leaves the sermon out is he just wants to show you the shock of the people as they heard Jesus teach. I don't know about you. I think that'd be pretty neat to sit under the teaching of Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool to hear Jesus preach a sermon? Wow, I bet that was awesome. And it was. Blew these people away. Now look at the next thing that happens. He finishes teaching. People are like blown away. <laughs> but watch this. Look at verse 23. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Imagine that. This is number two. It was a command. He commanded authority over evil, casting out the demons. Isn't it interesting that there's a guy in their church that had a that was demon possessed and nobody knew it up to that point? Make you kind of wonder what was going on in their synagogue, doesn't it? That a demon possessed guy could be in there and never be bothered by what was said. Y'all catching my drift? Yet Jesus comes, teaches with authority, and this demon comes to the surface. He can't, he, he can't be quiet any longer. He can't stand this. The presence of the teaching of Christ had an effect on this demon. But apparently, the teaching of the others did not. Isn't that something to think about this morning? The Bible says that he had an unclean spirit at the end of 23, and he cried out. I bet he did. Verse 24, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you? Now notice this. 
He knew who Jesus was, earthly. Jesus of Nazareth. I know who you are. First of all, Jesus, the name Jesus, every, they said in the first century, every fourth man had the name of Jesus. That was the number one name for boys, Hebrew boys in the first century. So it's Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town, 50 people. Very specific. They knew who he was and where he was from. What are we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? And now notice this. I know who you are. He doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. What is, who does he say? The Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. I think that second screen needs to come up there. Paul's doing double duty up there today. Just pull that next one. There he goes. They can fill that in. I know Jack, Jack will be mad if he doesn't get to do all the fill-ins this morning. So there's your fill-in, Jack. So he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So they knew, they knew who Jesus, the man, was, but they also knew a little something about who he was that was hidden inside of that man, didn't, didn't they? They knew that he wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth, but that he was the Son of God. They recognized not only his humanity in their first address, they recognized his deity in their second address. Y'all catch that? Look at 25. <clears throat> but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out. When they were all amazed, or then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, listen to this, and they obey him. You see that word authority comes up twice. First of all, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught with authority. And now, because he taught with authority, the demon expresses itself, and Jesus says, shut up and come out of him. And he does, and now they say, what is this? For with, what's that word? Authority, he commands the unclean spirit, and they obey. Wow, we're starting to see the authority, the kingdom authority of the, of the great servant the son of God as Mark introduces him in verse number one. I find that absolutely fascinating. And by the way, the demon's declaration of him as the son of God did not open their eyes to the identity of Jesus. Don't miss that. They were amazed at Jesus' authority, but they did not yet believe. And I want you to know, you can be amazed at the person of Jesus. You can be amazed at the gospel and still not believe it or be walking in truth. Amen? Interesting. Number three, I want you to see the compassionate authority that he has over sickness. Verse 28 says this. It's not a surprise. It's more of a commentary by Mark. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee, I bet it did. He'd already been doing some stuff. He had to cleanse the leper. He had been already started to cast demons out. And, and, and word is getting out that, that 
somebody new's in town. This is, he's doing some things that are different. But number three I want you to see is compassionate authority over sickness. Right? It's still a Sabbath day. Don't, don't, don't miss that. Look at verse 29. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, right? So as soon as church was over. Now by the way, when it says he, he taught them, that word taught, he began to teach them. That word is in the continuing present participle, which means he did not teach a brief lesson. He taught them in depth. So after this whole thing happened, he cast a demon out. I imagine that benediction, that service was a little bit different, don't you think? As soon as it's over, Peter invites him to his house for a meal. And, and of course, Andrew, his brother, comes. It appears that James and John, because they're following their disciples of Jesus, they come with him as his news spreads about who he is. So they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, all right? So we got those four men and Jesus, maybe a few more. Look at verse 30, though. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Now, I want you to take the Bible glasses off for a minute. Uh, why would they tell Jesus immediately about Peter's sick mother-in-law who has got a fever? Well, I think that's what we think. That's Sunday school glasses talking. I think it's a warning. Say, hey, j just so you know, my mom-in-law's in the back and she's got a fever. You're coming into a sick house. Now, fevers were not uncommon, especially in, in northern Galilee. It was a little bit marshy there. People could get, you know, you could get bit by a mosquito and catch something and get a fever. And it doesn't indicate that this fever was unto death. Probably something she was going to get over. I think it was more of a friendly, uh, hospitable, hey, just so you know, uh, you know, we got lunch prepared, but my mom-in-law is in the back and she got a fever. She's not feeling well. I, I, that's what I think it was. I think it was just a, hey, uh, just a heads up. Don't, don't want, I don't want you to come in under any false pretenses. Um, it might be catchy, it might not be catchy, but my mom-in-law's back there and she's sick. I don't think they were, they were doing that for Jesus to heal him. I don't think they had come that far yet in their understanding of who he really was, but that's exactly what Jesus does. Look at the next verse, 31. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately, there's that word again, immediately the fever left her. And she served them. I want you to notice the repetition of the words they and them in this text in verse 20. They came out of the synagogue. They came to his house. They spoke to him. Verse 31, she waited on them. Those plural pronouns include Jesus and his disciples, all of them together. And I think Mark is making the point that Jesus and his men are now partners in ministry, partners in the gospel. And he has complete authority over this sickness. Um, I want you to see that there. And it's interesting, don't, don't miss this, that as soon as she got well, what does she do? She served them. That's what we do, right? As soon as we're made well, as soon as we're resurrected from the dead to have a relationship with God, we, we begin to serve. Now I want you to notice this. Jesus has shows complete authority over demonic communication. Look at verse 32. 
So he heals Peter's mother-in-law. She gets up. She helps put the meal on the table. And she starts serving everybody. There's a, little, there's a few people in the home. They, by the way, they have excavated what they believe to be Peter's home in Capernaum, which is interesting. Peter, now, this is historical outside of Scripture, but it, when you start to add the, connect the dots in the Scripture, it starts to make sense. I don't think Peter was a poor fisherman. I think he had done very well for himself. His house was one of the larger homes in Capernaum. It had this really big, what they call a double courtyard in the middle um, that they think um, early on in the first century after Christ's return uh, and ascension to heaven, uh, that that was actually used to start one of the first churches in Capernaum. Um, so this is a big house. So keep this in mind. So they had this great meal, and now look at verse 29. Now as soon as they had come, I'm sorry, verse 32. At evening, when the sun had set. By the way, this is important. At evening when the sun had set, that means it began the next day. So in Jewish timetable, this, it's now Sunday. Because as soon as the sun goes down, we change at midnight, they change when the sun went down. So now it's Sunday, but it's about probably about 6 o'clock. Look what happens. Um, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And where was Jesus? Peter's house. So who, where did they bring all these people to? Peter's house. And look, look at this. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. There's no, no one can get in. We know there was 1,500 people that lived in Capernaum in the first century. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He did not allow the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. He did not want his identity getting out yet. Because God had a timetable. And it was not time for Jesus to be famous. Although that was happening. Jesus was trying to manage the marketing of the kingdom. By specifically commanding these demons to be quiet. And to not speak of who he was. Jesus ministers late into the evening and I would imagine at great personal cost. I'm thinking he was probably exhausted as a human being. To appreciate that toll uh, that it must have had on Jesus, consider the story in chapter 5 about Jesus healing a woman with a chronic bleeding. Mark tells us that the woman comes up behind Jesus and touches him to be healed and just on that touch of Jesus' robe, he immediately felt power, he called it virtue, go out of him. So clearly there's a, there's a physical, personal cost. And I'm thinking that Jesus, so it starts off in the morning, he's, he goes in the synagogue, he casts his demon out, he comes home and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, then the whole city, everybody who's sick or demon-possessed from the city, and the Bible says from the area around, come to him, he's healing well into the night. He is, he is probably absolutely exhausted. And yet when these demons are cast out, the Bible tells us he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. They knew who he was. And Jesus did not want, that was not Jesus' point yet. Jesus' point was the gospel of the kingdom, not his own personal promotion. Now that was going to come, but it needed to come at the right time, and that time was not yet. So Jesus commands them to be quiet. 
And by the way, I think the other reason he commands them to be quiet is this. Jesus doesn't need demons to declare who he is. That's what he's got you for. Amen? Disciples declare who Jesus is. We don't need demons to do it. That's, yeah, he doesn't want them to. Because think about when a demon speaks, is he speaking in order to convert people to the kingdom? No, he's speaking to keep people in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus needed them to be quiet, and we see that there. Now, this is fascinating, and this is the last one. Number five, begins in verse 35. Contemplative authority over distractions and human urgency. I have wondered this about Jesus. I've read this book, specifically the Gospels, which gives us the human story of Jesus. Not one time, well, maybe one time, and it's not even that. I'll explain that one in a minute. Jesus never is in a hurry. I defy you to find anything in the scriptures that show Jesus is checking the sundial and saying, oh man, we're late. He's never in a hurry. The only closest thing I see, and it wasn't a hurry, it was an internal thing, is that the last Passover, Jesus said, I'm very, I'm, he, what, what he says basically is I'm really looking forward to having this Passover with you. Wasn't in a hurry, but he was looking forward to that last Passover with his clueless disciples. And there's reasons for that we won't go into today. Jesus was never in a hurry, but he was often exhausted as a human being. Often tired. And you can see why. I mean, my, my children will tell you that... Uh, most of the time, when we go home after church, I'll eat lunch, sit in a chair, fall asleep. There's just something tiring, and it's, it's a good tiring, about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and ministering in God's house to God's people. It takes a physical toll. I don't know if this is true. It must have been written by a preacher, but they, they did a, I, I read something in, in uh, preachingtoday.com and they said that preaching uh, a 30 minute sermon I don't even know how to do that <laughs> but preaching a 30 minute sermon is the equivalent of 8 hours of hard labor I don't know if that's true but I will tell you I'm pretty tired when it's over right imagine Jesus he's going for 16 hours straight now and he virtue powers going out of him it's taking a physical toll. And I don't know about you, but like on those rare days that I got a day off, one of the things I say to myself when I go to bed, I gotta get up tomorrow. I'm sleeping in, and for me, sleeping in is like seven. Uh, I'm sleeping in tomorrow. Look what happens in verse 35. This is so weird. It's had a long, exhausting day. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight. I forget which kid it was. If it was Paul or Zach. Probably Zach because he's the one that hated it more than Paul did. But I would make these boys get up pre-dawn and go hunting with me. This one kept going. Zach went, killed his first deer, so I'm never doing this again. I said, okay. <laughs> he hated getting up. And I don't forget which boy it was, but one of them coined the term black dark morning. I said, we getting up at black, dark morning? I said, yeah, we are. Oh. 
Black and dark. Y'all ever get up at black and dark morning? Yeah. My, my, my mom does every day. Of course, she goes to bed at 11 o'clock and then 2 o'clock in the afternoon for the second nap. But she, goes, she gets up at 3 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning. She still thinks she's on the farm. Early in the morning. This guy's exhausted. So around 6 o'clock, this, this whole thing starts. And he goes into laid into the heels. Many who were sick and many who were demon-possessed. Who, who knows what time he, he rolls into bed? But we know what time he rolls out. Early in the morning. He's risen a long while before daylight. He went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. Isn't that something? Again, this is Mark. Listen, you don't expect to see this in Mark. This is Mark's fast commentary. It's boom, 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 boom. Immediately, immediately, immediately. He's going to only give the pertinent points. What's the point? Jesus getting up early, spending time with the Father, is a pertinent anchor point for his ministry. And listen to me. If Jesus needed that time with the Father before the day truly started, so do you, and so do I. We really do. We need it. We desperately need it. That might mean changing your routine. I don't know, whatever that means. Figure out a way to spend time with the Lord in prayer. It's just said of Martin Luther that He said one night before retiring to bed to his dear Catherine, his wife, he said, my dear, I have so much to do tomorrow. I must rise up three hours early so I might spend those hours in prayer. So I need to get up earlier than normal because I got so much to do tomorrow because I need to, I need to spend the first three hours praying because there's so much to accomplish tomorrow. Is that how we think? That's how Jesus thought. And it's interesting. It says, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to what kind of a place, church? A solitary place. You know, that's the same word for wilderness that we found at the beginning of Mark 1 when he went out to the wilderness for 40 days. Well, he's out there and he's praying, recharging his batteries with the, his father. And Simon and those who were, who were with him searched for him. They're looking all over the place. Because what do you think is happening at Simon's house that morning? There's probably more people coming, another crowd coming, right? So they go and they finally found him, verse 37. And they said to him, everyone's looking for you. Why were they looking for Jesus? Yeah, because what, what did the text tell us? It said many were healed and many had demons cast out of them. Does it say all? It doesn't. I, I reckon that's right. They probably come back. And I know Pete, Peter's probably thinking, man, we got this thing rolling and blowing now. Let's let's go get it. We're 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 making progress. Look what he says. But he says to them, 
Let's go into the next towns. Then I may preach there also, because for this purpose I've come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. You know what Jesus said? Yeah, we got a great crowd. We got a great momentum going here in Capernaum. It's time to leave. That is not what church growth leaders would tell you to do today. But Jesus, listen, don't miss this. Jesus was not concerned with the growth of a crowd because he was more concerned with the growth of a few disciples who would later take that crowd and through the power of the Holy Spirit turn them into a congregation. They were not yet a congregation. That was not Jesus. He said, I tell you what we're going to do, fellas. Instead of going back to Peter's house and doing round two from last night, we're going to go to the next town. And we're going to preach the gospel there. And then the next time, every time the crowds gathered, he would minister to them, and then he would leave. He would leave. What's Mark's point? Why so fast? Why skip, why skip what he skips? Why highlight what he highlights? Because he wants you to see the immediacy of the kingdom authority that the servant exercises as his ministry is launched. And that same kingdom authority is available today. We live underneath it today, don't we? And, 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 and that kingdom authority is for our flourishing, for our growth, for, for our gain and the expansion of the kingdom, first of all, inside of us, and then ultimately externally. And my question is, is, it, is does that look like what's happening in your life? I wonder if it does. I wonder if we, could, if we could say that this kingdom authority is something we're flourishing under. Are we walking joyfully under the authority that Christ has over his kingdom? I tell you how that happens is Mark's big word after uh, immediately. And it's this big concept when it's not even in words. The concept is there. It's obedience. The demons obeyed him. The disciples obeyed him. Sickness obeyed him. Because he had authority. It's obedience. Why? Because the son obeys the father. And I said it before and I'll say it again and I'm going to be done today. But it's simply this. God's love language is obedience. And children, you need to learn to walk in the obedience of your parents, to your parents. And that's not always easy. Ask any of my children. It's not easy to walk in obedience to fallen and flawed parents. I get that. I had a fallen and flawed father. My mother was fairly perfect. I say that because she's here and I'm still a little scared of her. No. <laughs> We, we, we've all grown up underneath that, right? Right. I look around the people that I know in this room that I know a little bit of your history. Y'all have some fallen and flawed parents, amen? It's not easy. Sometimes I wonder how, how, how my kids can even sit under my preaching because they know me so well. And even more so my wife, God bless her. 
But you know what? We're called to obey. We're called to submit to the authority of King Jesus that we see so beautifully demonstrated in Mark's gospel. And, it's, and I'm going to close with this. It's not to submit eventually. Listen to me. It's to obey immediately. Immediate, complete obedience of the servant, King Jesus. Are we flourishing under that authority today? And have you obeyed the gospel? In just a minute, I'm going to pull these covers off our communion elements and invite you to come and remember in a physical way the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The physical representations of what has purchased our rescue. Do you know what these require? Faith, repentance, and following. How are we doing on those three? Are you losing faith? When's the last time we repented, had a change of mind about something that didn't look like Jesus? And how close are we following? As we said last week, are we walking in the dust of our king? Are we that close? Those would be some good questions to pray about at this time. So I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart. He might prepare you to be reminded of the price of obedience to the gospel. How beautiful this truth is. So I'm going to pray and you pray. Father, we come to you today thanking you for the good news of Jesus, our King, the great servant, and our master. I pray that as we open these elements in a moment, that just as Mark has reminded us of Jesus' complete authority over distractions, over, over uh, fatigue, over demonic elements, over sickness, through your word. Lord, it's all authority. Now, we praise you this morning that you have given to Christ Jesus all authority. As he said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And for that, we praise you today. So, Lord, I pray that we would be flourishing under the authority of your son, under your authority demonstrated through him today. That you would bring to our hearts right now anything that we need to turn from. Anything that we need to walk away from. And we would trust you for the difference. Teach us to follow you and to flourish in that following. In Jesus' name, amen.